Okay, here's the tease. God did not send his son to restore you to good behavior. God sent his son to restore you to himself. Congratulations. Through the powerful providence of a benevolent benefactor, you've stumbled onto this visual and auditory digital booyah base hosted by yours truly, hipster grandfather, David A. Holland. Here, we explore the too good to be true, poorly understood, badly neglected realities of what Jesus actually launched 2000 years ago. A new covenant, a better covenant based on better promises. Consider this a red pill for those trapped in the matrix of lifeless religion. So, check your religion at the door. Grab a beverage, grab a Bible, strap in, gird your loins. This is the new and better podcast. Episode 5. Yeah, episode five of the New and Better podcast, and we're doing something new here. It's the first time, won't be the last time. Uh, I have a conversation with a, a friend who's got some important and illuminating things to share. Uh, Eric Morgan is a really good friend of mine, and every time we have a conversation over lunch or coffee or whatever, I end up telling myself, man, I wish I'd recorded that. That would have been a great been a great podcast. Eric is um, he's kind of like Clark Kent and Superman. His, his Clark Kent persona is uh, as a successful commercial real estate uh, guy here in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. But um, his uh, cape and spandex superpower is actually uh, explaining grace and the goodness of God in ways that just become very practical and understandable. So Eric, I appreciate you just taking a little bit of time to just, uh, so we can have one of those conversations and the folks listening can just be a, a fly on the wall and uh, we'll uh, we'll just explore a little bit of the goodness of God. Does that sound good? Sounds good to me. That's quite an introduction. Thank you, David. <laughs> oh, Yo, you bet. You know, we've talked about this before, but in, in, my, uh, in my original devotional, uh, Praying Grace 55, Meditations and Declarations on the Finished Work of Christ, available wherever fine devotionals and Christian books are sold. Uh, it's no accident, Eric, that the first devotion in here is called Escape the Try-Harder Trap. Uh, and it's uh, this, the opening paragraph or two just says, it's been said that the last 2,000 years of teaching and preaching on how to successfully live the Christian life and please God could actually be encapsulated in a simple two-word exhortation, try harder. Do you keep stumbling over the same sin or habit? Try harder. Are you struggling to love unlovely people and obnoxious people? Well, try harder. Failing time and again to rise an hour early for prayer and Bible reading? Try harder. Not giving enough, serving enough, witnessing enough, attending church services enough? Try harder. You know the prescription, bear down, double up, lather, rinse, repeat in an endless, frustrating, shame-soaked cycle of defeat and failure that robs you of your confidence before God and keeps you feeling like the only Christian in the world who isn't doing all the things. Uh, did you ever spend any time in your life in the, on that uh, try harder treadmill? Unfortunately, yes, absolutely. You know, I think that uh, the try harder, do more gospel is alive and well today. Um, 
You know, the interesting thing, David, I, I, the first portion of my life, I think I, the rebellion side uh, got me in more trouble. But when I came back to the Lord with sincere intention, I think that the most, uh, probably the biggest trap that was set for me was to try the try harder. Because it, it's innate. It's intuitive. You go, well, yeah, that makes sense. I'm Adam sinned. He was cast out of the garden. Adam's most natural question is, what must I do to get back in? And um, if you don't preach the gospel in its purest form, uh, it's you're so vulnerable to return to try harder, do more, principle-based living, things other than the gospel. And uh, I've definitely, I've definitely spent some time there. So, absolutely. And and that principle-based approach sounds really, really noble and good. But at the end of the day, it becomes transactional, doesn't it? It does. It does. You know, because of the condition of the human heart, I think we just come up with ways to work God more efficiently. But even at best, you only get out what you put in. And the difference between common grace and supernatural grace is I get to get out what Jesus put in. And, and that's the message that's transformative. That's the message you'd go, wow, not that I'm faith man, but you'd go, wow, that's worth giving my life for. Uh, and that's what he gave his life for. Yeah, that transactional thing. And, and I, I think part of it, human nature has a strong bent toward pride. You know, pride was the first, it was what got uh, Lucifer cast out of heaven. First of all, I shall be like God. It's what got Adam and Eve in trouble uh, in the garden. You know, you shall be like God. It was an appeal to an appeal to pride. And ever since then, I think pride is probably at the headwaters of most wrong thinking and wrong doing. And there's something about our nature that wants to earn and wants to deserve, or even when you're just sincerely grateful to God for what he's done, you want to pay him back. But that kind of that subtle, stealthy, pride-driven impulse creates this transactional mindset where you start thinking that if you can by good behavior or good works or doing the oughts or avoiding the ought nots, you're somehow purchasing credits in heaven <laughs> right. with God that you can then cash in at some point for uh, answered prayer when at a time when you really need it. That's absolutely true. Yeah, I think we, if you take the credit system, we think we're entering into our, our own resurrection in our own life rather than entering into his resurrection in his life. You know, it's not... Uh, uh, do to be. I, you either are by who God is or you are by what you do and what's outside of you. And we are by who he is as children of God. And so it certainly shifts and, and takes you out of that transactional mentality when you understand the grace of God. And it honestly, it sounds too good to be true when you hear it. Uh, but I've come to the conclusion it's too good and it's true. <laughs> you know, so there's, there's just, uh, it's, it's awesome. I, I think that when, when I started to get the gospel and when I share the grace of God in this way with people, the most common response I get is, if that's true, that changes everything. And that's usually the first indication you're getting it and you're laying down some of those innate, internal, intuitive things where we're trying to earn or merit or measure up um, that are so common in Adam's race. But in Christ, there's a new race of people and a new, a new life to be shared and lived. So... That's good. Okay, we're in the middle of a conversation here with my good friend, Deep Well, Eric Morgan, and we're going to have a lot more from him in just a moment. But first, page two. 
All right, we've entered the regular portion of our broadcast where I exhort you heartily to go grab Praying Grace for Women and uh, grab two copies because you're going to wish you had if you don't because you're going to want to give one away. Uh, and uh, I know that it will I know that it will bless you. It is absolutely custom tailored to help women operate in peace and uh, rest and uh, power in this crazy season of shaking uh, that we're in. And uh, for the man in your life, until Praying Grace for Men comes out this fall, by the way, be on the lookout for it, go get Praying Grace, the original as well, more than 200,000 copies in print. And I promise you, you'll be glad you did. Now, back to this conversation with our good friend, Eric Morgan. Yeah, talking about in Christ, um, you and I have had conversations in the past about a lot of the identity politics, polarity, polarization that our current uh, culture is uh, experiencing. It's you know, so divisive and uh, so much emotion uh, associated with it. And, it. and it is a, there's such a cultural pull for everybody to identify what tribe you're in or, you know, what, whether that's a based on sex, color, race, sexual orientation, you know, whatever it is, whatever that identity label you want to, you want to put on yourself. But I've heard you say something before, and, and I'd like you to articulate that and unpack it a little bit. Everybody on planet earth is either in one of two groups, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. There's biblically speaking, there's really only two races of people. There's those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Uh, those who are in Adam, they're dead, they're separated, and they're alienated. That's the consequence of natural birth. If you're born into this world, you're born into Adam's race. Those who are in Christ, there is love by the Father as the eternal Son is loved by the Father. What's true of Christ is true of them. Uh, they're reborn supernaturally by grace through faith. And those are the two races that exist in the earth. That doesn't deny uh, or, or not honor someone's uh, distinction. Like, I'm glad my wife is a woman, right? <laughs> I love ethnicity and culture. I think those are great things. But we are definitely, um, biblically speaking, there's two races of people. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And that's why Paul exhorts us 163 times in the New Testament with those words, in Christ. In Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed and new has come. He who knew no sin became sin for us, and in him you can become the righteousness of God. All the promises of God in him find their yes and their amen. So there's this life available to be shared when we, when we receive that transaction that he died for us and as us, that we could receive his death as our own and his life as our own, that, that does change everything. It's a massive game changer. No doubt. And it, there's a mind renewal process associated with getting one's identity rooted into that. You just don't, in a moment, hear that and say, oh, okay, got it, and move on forward from that instant without ever slipping back into that old mindset. There's, there's, there is a process. I'm still in process where that's concerned, but I'm a lot further along than I used to be in terms of rooting my identity in that understanding that I am in Christ. When I got born again, not only did, was he in me, I'm in him. So that when I walk into the presence of the Father, I'm walking in with Jesus's righteousness, his full obedience to the law, to my, to my credit, with, with his uh, acceptedness, with uh, every, it, it is as if 
the son himself, the beloved son of the father, perfect, flawless son is walking into to the presence of the father because I am in Christ. There's some process to go through before that really roots in, right? Oh, there is. I can't tell you how many times I'd embrace it, you know, and I'd walk in this great peace and then I'd read something a week later and be like, dang it, you know, I knew that was too good to be true. And then the Holy Spirit will come and bring understanding. But uh, yeah, it is. It takes a while to sink in, David. I, I really, I believe that is what sanctification is. Sanctification, biblically, if you look, is usually a single act to pick someone up in Adam and set them down in Christ. That action has been completed. I'm not inching toward a sanctification. I'm sanctified and I'm in Christ. But the process that works itself out is actually believing the good news of Christ in my current position that actually changes my belief system, which ultimately then changes my behavior. And I think kind of the crux of the man-made religion and transactionalism, you talked about pride being one of the original sins. The arrogance that we would elevate man's obedience above Christ's obedience is insane. Um, the idea that we would say, if you'll do this, God will bless you. And then we create categories for people or pastors or other things based on how deep they go in a principle, rather than saying the real blessing is to be in Christ. And because you're in Christ, you get to do these things. You don't do these things to earn merits or favors or, you know, position with God, which is such a wonderful reality that, you know, we want everybody to experience. So um, that uh, that's just the truth <laughs> the gospel that's good. It is, but it, but it is somewhat counterintuitive and it certainly rubs against the grain of our uh, religious impulses. You know, whenever you start to unpack the implications of grace for someone, often the accusation that you'll hear or the response that you'll hear is, oh, well, you're just saying that my behavior doesn't matter, that I can just go do anything I, I, I please. I can just act any way I want, say anything I want, and there are no, no implications. And which is a real distortion of the grace message. What, what you're saying, and which I believe is absolutely right, is all, all we've done is we've mistaken cause and effect. In other words, we've operated. Religion has told us that good behavior is a cause. It's what causes us to be, have favor with God, qualify for his promises, uh, be able to uh, uh, merit anything that somehow behaving well is a, is a cause, uh, when really it's an effect, you know, it's, it pl plug in Jesus restored us to the presence of the father and being in his presence, eating of the tree of life, drinking of that living water organically produces change from the inside out. Religion has us disciplining ourselves through willpower and discipline from the outside in. We're always hacking at the leaves and the little branches of our behavior, uh, working from the outside in, whereas drinking from the living water, brooding your identity and the things that we're talking about begins this process of internal transformation that changes me from the inside out. There's this organic restful thing that happens where all of a sudden I, I am thinking differently than I thought, and I'm wanting differently than I had, had wanted. And then I end up doing differently than I have been doing because my doing is really downstream from my thinking and my wanting. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden I'm finding from a, a place of rest and repose and enjoyment of God, all of those behavioral changes that I wanted so badly to have happen in my life so that I could earn or merit or deserve qualify 
suddenly when I, when I stopped trying to qualify and just reconnected to God, all of those things just organically started, started happening. It's cause versus effect. Yeah, I have a saying I like to use, um, clarity comes from having Christ in clear view. When you take your eyes off yourself and you put them on Jesus, it's amazing what you see. It's amazing what happens. Just like uh, in Corinthians, when it's describing the new covenant, it says, when Moses is read to this day, there's a veil over the eyes of men. But when one looks to Christ, the veil is removed. And there's just this glory when we see him. Uh, and if you jump to Romans 5, which I think is probably the most gospel-rich content in the scripture, where it contrasts Adam with Christ, the first man and the last man. And it says, uh, through one's uh, disobedience, uh, many were uh, condemned, but through one's obedience, many are justified. And if you go on down, when it talks about the reign of grace, the era of grace that we live in, you know, most religion says, if you want to reign in life, you got to stop doing these things and start doing these things. Again, behavior. They start with behavior. They start from the outside in. But that's not how God works. God works from the inside out. So he said, hey, you want to reign in life? Receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness and go reign in life. So, you know, you could boil it down to, is it about receiving or achieving? Is it about trusting or trying? And it's about trusting and it's about receiving. And when we receive this glorious grace, it changes us from the inside out. For those who I've shared this message with and they go, well, I get to do all this extra stuff. I go, no, no, that's an orphan spirit. You know, when you experience, the, when you experience lavish, lavish grace, the response is lavish love. You go, how do I love this God? I'm so thankful. How do I live this out? The have tos have shifted to want tos and I get to and I realize, oh my gosh, he doesn't love me because I'm good. He loves me because he's good. And then you realize everything comes to us. Mercy, grace, goodness, all flows from him. It's source that originates in him. I don't have to do anything to move him. He's moved by his own goodness, his own kindness. He's not moved by the glory of the honor of my name, but the glory of honor of his own name. And uh, it's just... It creates this crazy, awesome gratitude that just springs up on the inside because you go, I can't believe it. I mean, you know, I don't know why he chose me, but I trust in the one who did the choosing. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's an insult to refuse what is being freely given as a gift. And you mentioned receiving the very word grace, the original Greek charisma or charis or, or, or charisma connotes gift. You can at the very essence at the heart of that Greek word is gift. And if, if you can earn it, it's a wage. If you can merit it, it's a reward, but a gift can only be received or not. That's right. And when someone offers you a lavish gift because they love you, a gift of extraordinary value and wealth, how insulting would it be for you to, to start fumbling around and say, well, I, I, I got to give you something. I've got to give you something in return. So here's a rock, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, right. you know, you've just given me vast wealth. And so, oh, I'm going to pay you back. Here's a rock. Um, Good example. You know, it, 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 it insults the gift giver, our, our mutual friend, Dudley Hall, who is a mentor to both of us in this way. Uh, loves to say, because we disobeyed our way out of the garden, we, we think we're going to obey our way back in. And which is a, a, another way of saying precisely what you were saying a moment ago. But the other thing is, is that 
God did not send his son to restore us to good behavior. He, he sent his son to restore us to the father. That was the end game. That was always the end game of the entire, everything that happened in the Old Testament that was pointing to the arrival of that second Adam, that last Adam. God sent his son into the world because what had been lost by the fall was connection to him. And Jesus came to make a way back. He, you know, he is the way back. He's the bridge. He's the, he's the, he's the gate. He's the way back to the father, which that connection was what was the objective. Not so that he could have a race of people who behaving well, behaving well as an effect, but, but that <laughs> wasn't good. the objective. The objective was to, ha to have a people who could enjoy him and he enjoy them. What Adam and Eve lost in the fall, as you know, Eric, is that the ability to just be with God and it feel natural, that it feel appropriate, that God shows up and you walk with him in the cool of the day and you enjoy each other and that you stand before in the presence of the God of the universe without any sense that it's inappropriate that you be there and be hanging out with him, and that you're standing before him naked and unashamed. That's what was lost. And what Jesus, his amazing accomplishment was to restore us back to that. We, we tend to push everything off to the sweet by and by. We tend to push everything off. Well, one day in heaven, we'll enjoy this, we'll enjoy that. It'll be great. But the fact of the matter is, is that that's true in a very real sense. It'll be consummated someday, either when we're in heaven or when Jesus comes back. There'll be a full consummation of that. But right now, today, dear viewer, listener, if you're in Christ, you're back in the garden. You're back. You can stand. You're naked before God. He sees everything. And, and because you're in Christ, you can be standing before him without any sense of shame because Jesus is your, has become your righteousness. You can come before him. It takes some mind renewal to these realities that Eric and I are talking about. But with a little bit of mind renewal and rooting your identity in these truths, you can come to the Father. And yes, he's an awesome God. Yes, awe is an appropriate response and uh, reaction when you see his glory, when you perceive his purity, his goodness. But the fact of the matter is, is that what Adam and Eve experienced was it was, yeah, with him is where I belong. And you can, you can feel that way too, not in the sweet by and by, but today. With the Father is where you belong, and you can enjoy Him. That was the goal. It's, why, it's what God moved heaven and earth to make possible. And so many believers, Eric, just aren't stepping into that. They just don't experience it. Well, you've said a lot, uh, <laughs> and I agree with that. If you go back to the garden, you know, what was lost in the garden wasn't divinity, it was humanity. And so Jesus came to bring a new humanity. We're the first fruits of a new race of people, Christ being the firstborn from the dead. And he'll have many sons and daughters. And those who receive this reality can walk in that, that there's actually a new race of people marked by the spirit, unified by love. Um, and I would say that, you know, we, like you said, we've usually misdiagnosed the issue. Um, when we look at sin, if you say the word sin, most people tie that word to behavior, like, uh, you know, uh, impurity or drunkenness or, uh, you know, uh, lying or deception. You, you could name it, but those are all linked to behaviors. And our behavior is not our issue. Our source is our issue. 
And when we're in Adam, you know, we're experiencing the fruit of the root that we're connected with. When we're in Adam, sin is the fruit. When you're in Christ, righteousness is the fruit. And so it would be like, I heard a pastor use this example one time and I thought it was pretty good, but he said, if we were walking into the building today and there was a person who died of a heart attack at the door and, and he ran up and this person was overweight and largely obese. And he said, Hey, what happened to the EMT? And the EMT said, well, his arteries got clogged. He had a heart attack and he died. And I say, Hey David, hold on. I'm going to run to my truck and grab a dieting book. And I run over to the corpse and I begin to shout healthy eating recipes at him. He'd go, Eric, <laughs> his problem's not his diet, he's dead. <laughs> and so, in, in Adam, we're dead, but in Christ, we're made alive, we're made new. And, and the issue is the source. So when you're in Christ, we get, a, we get a new life, we get new motivations, we get uh, to enjoy him freely as he enjoys us. And I would say probably, David, one of the huge turning points for me understanding this was one day I was sitting there and, and I took the word do and I exchanged it with the word done, it, just like the word from and the word for. And I remember thinking, wow, what would it be like to go from living for the love of God to living from the love of God? And the Lord said, well, that's what you have in Christ. And I thought, wow, what if I went from praying for a victory to praying from victory, from his victory, not just praying to God, but praying with God. And I mean, it just was revolutionary. And I thought, oh my good, goodness, you're telling me I can confess my sin from a position of being forgiven, not just to be forgiven? And, you know, when I saw it that way, when I saw what I had in his life, it really helped me overcome going back to that transactional, humanistic, behavioral-oriented uh, way of living. Because I think the most common interpretation we have, David, is we think it's about who we are and what we do for God, rather than recognizing it's really about who he is and what he did for us in Christ. And when we can get our eyes up off ourselves long enough to see him, it just changes everything. It resets your motives. You're, you're, you're in Christ. You begin to see things from his perspective, not just from your perspective. And it really, what happens is you go from having a self-consciousness to a Christ consciousness. And, you know, you go over to Hebrews 10 and you begin to understand what those passages mean when they say, hey, be clean, cleansed from a sin consciousness. Or John 15 says, you're already clean because of the word I spoke to you. Well, what was that word? Well, it was Jesus, the full and the final word of God. And, uh, and, and then you can really experience what freedom is. And freedom isn't just getting to do what you want to do. Freedom is living beyond yourself. Uh, it's living from his perspective. And uh, like you said, it's not that I'm free to do what I want to do. It's I'm free to do with the Father what he wants to do. I'm not set free from obedience to Christ. I'm set free unto obedience to Christ. And that's the healthy perspective, I think, in the, in the economy of grace. And it's really good news. I mean, you know, you mentioned the word gospel uh, right at the top of this conversation. And, and it's, a, it's a church word we've heard all of our lives and people in church have heard. And, and it means different things to different people. But at the end of the day, the pure gospel, the true gospel, if it's not good news, it's not the gospel. That's right. Uh, as God intended it uh, to be, the, what the, as, as the New Testament, the New Covenant uh, presents it. Um, if you're hearing something called the gospel and it doesn't strike your heart as, as saying, that is remarkably good news, uh, it's, probably, it's probably not the, the authentic, pure gospel. I heard somebody say once, and, and it always startles when, so when I hear you talking, I've, I've been walking in this and, and in process on these truths for many decades. And yet 
I'll hear you talk or I'll hear Dudley Hall talk or somebody uh, like that, just presenting the truth about God's grace and, and uh, what Jesus did. And my, it never stops startling me. It never stops, it never stops ringing a bell in my spirit that says, oh my, oh yeah, that's so, that's so wonderful. And to that point, I heard somebody once say that, you know, the, it's the good news and it never stops being good, but it also never stops being news. You know, there's, there's something, uh, it's always good when we hear it, but it's always startling when we hear it. Well, I couldn't agree more with you. I, uh, at one time looked at all the words for gospel in the new Testament and I won't give you all the words right now, but I wrote my own, uh, definition, uh, in layman's terms of what those words meant. And it would sound something like this. The gospel is an announcement of such utter and paramount significance that upon hearing it, nothing again will ever be the same. Hmm. Hmm. And I mean, that's it. And uh, our friend Dudley Hall says, uh, we have internal tuning forks built in like a musician. They have to tune their instrument to something. And because of that tuning fork that's built in, when someone releases imperishable seed, you may not know the person, but on the inside you go, that's truth. That's the gospel. That's good news. It sounds too good to be true, but I, I, there's this yearning in you that says, I need it. I want it. I believe it. And, uh, and that's what happens. We begin to, uh, the inner man overtakes the outer man. It's the Christ within us. It's like the embers. When you blow on them, they, the fire begins to blaze. And, you know, we're not, uh, religion is build a fire and you get to maintain it and sustain it. But the gospel is step into me and I'm an all consuming fire and I will be your source and your sustenance for the rest of your life. And that's, that's who he is and what he does. So good. So good. It is a lifestyle and it's a lifestyle of rest. You know, I've recently been taking a group of, of our folks with the house church through the book of Hebrews and, and so much, especially those early chapters of Hebrews are just speaking and pleading with the original audience, Jewish people in the first century who were hearing the gospel, pleading with them, imploring them to, to not fail to enter into rest because this acceptance of this new covenant proposition really is a form of rest. He likens it to those, uh, that generation of Israelites who God brought them up right to the threshold of a, of a land of promise right over there. He said to them, I'm with you. I've already gone before you. The, your victory has assured, is assured because I've gone before you. I've done the work. All you have to do is receive this land that I've given you by stepping across uh, to it. But through fear and through um, stubbornness, according to the, the Bible, uh, they refused. They refused to step over and enter into that, into that rest and uh, likening the people who were hearing the gospel uh, to that generation of people, the writer of Hebrews says, make, make, be extra careful, actually be afraid. It's the only time in the Bible, in the New Testament, we're told to be afraid. Be afraid that you haven't entered into that rest. Because once you've entered in, you've, you're, you're at rest from, in two ways. You're at rest First of all, from that try harder trap, from that try harder hamster wheel of that you of trying to merit and feel like you deserve 
which is which you will never ever ever do you will never clear that bar it's exhausting it's like that greek um, uh, mythological guy sisyphus trying to push a boulder up a mountain right you will never get that boulder up the mountain uh and so entering into and embracing the gospel first of all is rest from that striving that struggling that scraping and scrapping to tr- to try to gain any kind of sense that you've earned or, or merited anything from God. It is a complete rest from that. And then it's also a, 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 a rest of, of your soul. It's, it's resting in knowing that you're accepted, you're loved, you're received, uh, and, and you, you could not possibly be any more loved or accepted or received than you are at that moment. And when your heart begins to receive that truth, there's just this, wow, you know, and it doesn't mean our, our days of activity are over. Once the Israelites crossed the river, there were cities to take and land to take and far seeds, you know, to plant and things to do. There, there was there was activity, but there was not what, what it, God called it rest because he had assured them victory, right? Amen. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I always enjoy uh, when Dudley teaches at the end, he often says, well, deal with it. He doesn't say do it. <laughs> and often the announcements right. of the gospel are about what God has done in Christ. And so there's these huge realities that all you can do is receive. And when you've received it, there's quite a bit to do. But it's not uncommon from the exhortations of Paul in the, in the New Testament. He always starts with, this is who you are, therefore this is how you live. And so I think receiving this reality, it's a doing that flows out of being. Um, it's from, not for, like you were saying earlier. Yes, yeah, exactly. And so it's an action that flows out of my identity. I'm not acting into an identity. I'm acting from an identity. And like you said, it just changes the way that we live because our rest isn't a single day. Well, our, our rest is now a person. Jesus is our promised land. Every day is a day of rest in him. And... The law requires, but grace inspires. And when the grace of God touches our heart, it inspires action. The word says he'll give you the desire and the power to carry out his will. And uh, it's, it's, that is the effect. Um, when I'm reading the scripture now, based on being a son of God, I see the glory of God in the Old Testament in the person of Jesus. So that's what I'm always looking for. And I don't look, for, I don't look at it as what, what do I do anymore? Like, okay, let me find what I need to do to be blessed. Right? I go, okay, well, when I read it, I'm looking for what's been done. Because when I find what's been done, if I'm in him, then I know what belongs to me. And when I know who I am and who he is, it, it empowers my doing. It empowers me to live with him and, 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 and cooperate with him, partner with him, subdue the earth, occupy till he comes. These awesome things that we get to do with him that we actually get to do from a position of rest and confidence, not from a position of fear or doubt or insecurity. And, and it's, it's such life to us. David, it's just, uh, it's, it's a joy. It's, it's a real joy. Absolutely. And even in interesting times, and we are living in interesting times, no question about it. We're in a season of of shaking. Uh, you know, for some folks, it just kind of feels like the wheels have come off completely. Sometimes I I think I'm a student of history, history, and I tend to, I tend to think that one reason we think that is because we don't know 
what people have been through in the past. These cycles come around and uh, the pendulums swing back and forth. And uh, But there is no question that we are living in a time of, uh, of shaking, which makes it all the more vital for us to have that rooted identity that you're talking about. What are you, you know, you work with a lot of folks, you, um, you're, you're a husband, you're a father, uh, you're a friend and mentor uh, to many. When you're talking to folks about the times that we're living in, how are you encouraging them? What are you saying to them? Well, it is difficult times we live in, but I'm convinced that we were born to live in this time. So I'm convinced in the one who put us here in this hour to say, okay, well, if God's revealing something, it's always for our good. When you, when you receive the gospel we just presented and have talked about, even God's wrath being released is under the backdrop of his love for us. So even something that seems difficult in the scriptures, if it's motivated by the love of God, it's always for my good. And so I, I try to talk to, it's a wonderful opportunity to talk to them about what can't be shaken, what is sure. You know, Colossians says, focus on Christ and where, is, where he is and what he presides over. And so I usually try to take people there and just start with identity because I think many of the issues of our time, uh, everybody's trying to figure out who they are. And because they don't know who they are, uh, when we present to them who they are in, in Christ, how God loves them, what he did in his son for them, it often gives that significance, that meaning. It's, I think, when he said, go preach the gospel to the poor. It's not just saying economically poor. It's helping people understand their intrinsic value to the Father because of his love for them. And so when we're validating who they are and what he's done for them, uh, what, a, what a treasure, what a gift that is. So, um, you know, though, practically speaking, I, I often talk to start with identity and try to help help them understand who they are and then try to help make sense of what they're experiencing as a result of who they are. Because once they know who God is and they understand who they are, they can understand this is temporary. This isn't forever. Uh, the trials that we have uh, are real and difficult in the moment, but we know they'll produce a great weight of glory as we look at God and continue on with him. And the way I see it, uh, David, I, I wouldn't say I, I need to be encouraged often, but uh, in, in the grand scheme of things, when I step back, in the scriptures, the most difficult times were where the greatest men were born. You know, when David's mighty men came on the scene, it was difficult times. They were in debt, distressed, and persecuted. And it sounds very similar to our time right now. And when I look at that, those were my favorite stories to read. Now, it's a little different when you're living it out, the pains of it, the reality of it. You're like, oh man, I just wish this would go away. I wish it would get better. I wish I didn't have to deal with this. But if we trust God in the process and we play the long game, not just the short game, which means we have an eternal perspective, not just a time-bound perspective. Um, there's a lot of hope. You begin to look up and go, wow, every decision I make is for a purpose. There's something greater that's coming. And our hope gets more anchored and secure. And, and really what this has revealed about me and many of us is we realize we anchored a lot of things in temporal reality that really didn't satisfy. And when God exposes it, you go, whoa, he died so I could have peace, not when all this stuff clears up, but have it now. And he doesn't just want to offer me some peace. He wants me to have his peace. I get to abide in his peace. And so some of the conflict, I think the tribulation and the suffering that we experience often brings us and invites us into deeper degrees and revelations of God's grace. So um, try to, I just so try good. to take the opportunities to share that. Awesome. So good. All right, Eric, we're up against time. Uh, so rich. We've got a lot more we can talk about, so let's circle back here uh, before too long, and let's have another one of these conversations and uh, share them with others. But I can't thank you enough for uh, taking a little time with us today. 
David, thanks for having me, man. I'm honored to be on with you. Really enjoyed it. We look forward to doing it again. All right. We'll talk again soon. God bless you. All right. God bless you. Okay. That brings us to the back end of our little encounter today. And I uh, really appreciate you uh, joining us. Thanks again to Eric Morgan for sharing uh, with us. It's everything that comes out of his mouth is always gold. But now it's time for takeaways. As we saw, our tendency is to think that because we disobeyed our way out of the garden, we're going to obey our way back in. And as the lady in that uh, old Geico commercial said, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. We can't obey our way back into the garden. Jesus obeyed our way back into the garden. Being in him is what gets us back into the garden. And if you are in him, if you are born again, you're clothed in his righteousness. You're, you're, um, uh, his obedience has been attributed to and imputed to you. His perfect obedience to the law. And it has made you, it's purified you, it's cleansed you, it's qualified you. I know it sounds arrogant. It sounds too good to be true, but it is what the Bible says. That with God is where you belong because you are in Christ and bringing you back to him, back to connection with him, intimate relationship with him was the whole point. God did not send his son to restore you to good behavior. God sent his son to restore you to himself. And once you get restored to him, once you're drinking from that well, your behavior is going to change. You know, you won't be left like you, like you started. I can assure you of that. All right, more good stuff uh, coming up ahead uh, in the weeks ahead right here. Uh, but for now, God bless you. And thanks for joining me here on the Doing Better Podcast.